You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. Welcome to another episode of Across the Table. I'm Jeff Cockrell, the head of the private equity group at McGuire Woods. In our Across the Table series, we talk with dealmakers and other experts on a lot of the key issues that surround private equity investment in the healthcare industry. Today, I'm joined by my partner, Kate Hardy, and we're going to talk about pharmacy services and pharmacy benefit management services. As a little bit of an intro, we represent a lot of different private equity funds that have invested heavily in healthcare over the last several years, and a lot of that investment has been in the consolidation of providers. That's been a very active sector across a lot of different verticals within healthcare. Those investments carry their own kind of benefits and risks. And we've seen a number of our investor clients looking to diversify their investments in healthcare, looking at some of the other sectors that are not either built on consolidation of provider services or reliant on federal reimbursement, which creates its own sets of risks. And in that expansion, we've seen a lot of investors looking towards uh, healthcare IT as a very vibrant area. We've seen many investors looking at payer services and and different sorts of B2B-type relationships with the payer community. We've also seen a lot of expansion into pharmacy, pharmacy services, and pharmacy benefit management. Kate, maybe you could give a little introduction of yourself and then explain to us a little bit from a high level what PBM services are and pharmacy services are. Sure. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. My name's Kate Hardy. I'm a partner in the Charlotte office. I'm in the healthcare group at McGuire Woods. I do both regulatory and transaction work, primarily in the life sciences and pharma space. And I've done quite a few different types of transactions in this space for pharmacy services and pharmacy benefit managers. So for a quick overview, pharmacy services is something that most people are familiar with. You think of your CVS or your your Walgreens where you go and you get your prescription. But there's a couple of different types of pharmacies, and we can talk about these in a little bit. There's your normal CVS pharmacy, your Walgreens, where you think of to get your prescription. There are higher-end pharmacies that are called 503B pharmacies. These pharmacies typically do a lot of compounding work with various types of drug products for facilities. We've also seen a movement into a lot of online pharmacies, so not necessarily a brick and mortar, but a pharmacy where you just contact the pharmacy through a website and order prescriptions that way. Pharmacy benefit managers are the middleman in the drug supply chain. So when you think of a pharmacy, Your insurance normally pays for your prescription. A lot of times there's a pharmacy benefit manager in the middle who is negotiating the fees and the cost for that prescription between the insurer and the pharmacy. So on one end, a pharmacy benefit manager will contract with employer health plans to negotiate your prescription drug benefit plan. And then on the other hand, the pharmacy benefit manager will contract with the drug manufacturers to negotiate rebates or other discounts on the drugs that are being purchased through those pharmacies. 
initially when PBMs were first created, the whole idea was to try to lower drug prices and pass on discounts to purchasers. However, over the past few years, there's been quite a bit of controversy with respect to the role that pharmacy benefit managers are playing and whether or not they are actually helping to reduce drug prices or now whether the middleman is actually making drug prices go up. Thanks, Kate. You mentioned the 503A and the 503B pharmacies. Can you kind of compare and contrast those a little bit and then describe where you're seeing more investment activity and why you think that would be? Yeah, sure. So the 503A pharmacies, like we mentioned, are the typical type of pharmacies that you think about, your CVS, your Walgreens, a pharmacy that you would have in a hospital. And the 503B pharmacies are pharmacies that really only do compounded drug product on more of a manufacturing scale. And their products are sold either to other manufacturers because they're using them in drug product or they're sold to hospital-type facilities. The 503B pharmacies generally aren't selling product to consumers or other types of customers like you would think of for a 503A pharmacy. And the 503A and the 503B pharmacies are heavily regulated both by state law but also by the Food and Drug Administration. Everyone is probably very familiar back in about 2014, there was the New England compounding pharmacy case where a pharmacy had compounded products that ended up infecting and actually, unfortunately, killing several people because the product wasn't properly compounded. Okay, that that case drew a lot of attention. The compounding pharmacies, as opposed to the regular drug manufacturers, have a, a little bit different kind of standards of their manufacturing processes. And it was the difference in those manufacturing processes that gave room for a company to not be as precise in some of the things they were doing, and it ended up making a lot of people sick. And for that case in particular, for a a few years, people were pretty afraid of compounding pharmacy businesses just because they had a lot of fear that the manufacturing side of those businesses carried a lot of unknown liability. Yes, that's correct. And since that time, the FDA has come out with several different guidances, which has made it a little more clear what's required for both a 503A pharmacy, again, like the CVS pharmacy, which might still compound certain types of products, and also the 503B compounding pharmacy. So it's it's definitely a little bit more clear now as to how to operate those facilities. The 503Bs, there were Quite a few companies, when the new guidance came out, decided that they were going to get into the 503B space. What many of them didn't realize is the very high level of manufacturing and compliance requirements that were needed to properly compound products. There are a few companies that jumped right into the 503 compounding space and unfortunately did not have quite what they needed to make it, and 
There are several of them that have since gone out of business. Because of that, some investors have been a little more shy when it comes to maybe looking at a 503B pharmacy. But if a pharmacy is very up to speed on the FDA requirements, understands all the manufacturing requirements, isn't really an area to be too terribly concerned about. But because it's different and a little bit newer, not as many people have been investing in the 503B pharmacies. The 503A pharmacies is where we've seen more activity. And I I think part of that as well is because a lot of these pharmacies are, in fact, compounding medications that are frequently used in a physician practice. One example of physician practices that typically uses compounding pharmacies a lot are ophthalmology practices. We've seen several ophthalmology practices that are associated with the pharmacy or maybe have a separate entity that is a 503A pharmacy that's doing compounding. So I think these are just a little bit easier for investors to understand, and they're, they're a lot more typical. So if we think of the 503A as being more in the realm of the traditional retail-type pharmacies that we're familiar with, the 503B is being the the compounding pharmacies that are mixing up particular cocktails from pre-existing compounds, we hear a lot of discussion around specialty pharmacy as well. What does that describe? Specialty pharmacy, they are typically putting together more expensive or rare type drugs, like there are a lot of specialty pharmacies that put together drugs in the hemophilia space. A 503A pharmacy could also be doing specialty pharmacy type services. Specialty pharmacy really is just another term to discuss the the type of drug products that the pharmacy is distributing. Right. We often see them built around particular diseases and their customer bases would not necessarily be as uh, geographically concentrated as you might think of a more local pharmacy, but They'd be a a specialty pharmacy making a particular cocktail or a suite of things that are related to a particular disease. Exactly. Kate, in these different forms of pharmacies, what what kind of payers would a pharmacy be encountering, recognizing that in some of the diversification, some investors have an appetite for having direct government reimbursement for the different services? Others have less of it. What what kind of a payer mix would these different pharmacies expect? Most pharmacies probably do touch on some type of federal health care program, either Medicare, Medicaid, or TRICARE. There are some that may not, but I think more typically you would probably see both federal health care programs and commercial managed care programs for a pharmacy. And that's because the more payers they participate with, the more customer and patient business the pharmacy is going to be able to get as well. So that's a revenue tracker. So in the context of a, of a pharmacy transaction, what are some of the transactional considerations that an investor would need to be mindful of in navigating a deal in that space? Key considerations in this space, the first one and the most important is the pharmacy license. 
Each state requires a pharmacy to hold a license to practice. So whether you're conducting pharmacy services in a particular state or if you ship pharmacy products across state lines into another state, you'll be required to be licensed in both of those states. 50-state regime for pharmacy licenses, all of them are a little bit different. So it's very important in a transaction, and this applies whether you're doing or a stock deal, the State Board of Pharmacy is going to require at least notice and potentially require an entire new application to be submitted. And each of those states has very different timing as far as when the notice or application needs to be submitted. Some states require a new license to be issued before the transaction closes. Some of those licenses can take 60 or more days to get processed. So it's very important from a timing perspective to really understand each state where the pharmacy is operating, how the pharmacy is operating in that state, and then what are the requirements for each state for the pharmacy for either notice or also submitting a new application. Having been through that a few times, a business doesn't have to be scaled up very big before you find yourself touching a number of these states, and they, they often have very exacting processes, and sometimes you can navigate to shorten the waiting periods in that, and sometimes not. So one of the key takeaways as you're on the front end of a transaction in the pharmacy space is to recognize that the change of ownership license process is often the long pull in the tent for getting from point A to point B in closing. So starting that process early and vigorously is usually a good idea. It's a lot of paperwork, but it will save a lot of time to get that timeline going early in the transaction process. So, Kate, both in the context of a transaction and just kind of ongoing regulatory health of a company, what is the audit relationship that one of these companies has with the government? How frequently do they get audited? How much noise comes out of that in the context of a transaction? How should people be thinking about that audit process? Most state boards of pharmacy are going to be auditing the 503A, so your consumer pharmacy type businesses, on some sort of audit schedule. It's a little bit different in each state. Normally, the regulators will come in. They'll ensure that the pharmacist in charge has the proper license, that the drugs are being stored appropriately if there's any type of Sterile processes going on, those will be reviewed in detail. If there is an issue, most pharmacies will get an opportunity to correct that. If issues are not corrected, occasionally you will see fines by the State Board of Pharmacy. Those are usually fairly low in number in the thousands. But if you, when you're doing diligence, understanding whether or not a pharmacy has had a history of issues with the State Board it's very important to understand if anything needs to be cleaned up or you potentially might have issues with the pharmacy going forward. Kate, how frequently kind of in your diligence processes do you find targets that have some hiccups in that process and how serious do they tend to be? On the steeport of pharmacy level, we find them occasionally. I, they're usually... 
I'd say maybe a third of the time we'll come up with something in a particular state. Sometimes it just depends on how aggressive the particular state board of pharmacy is or if there's been any across-the-board issues. And most of the fines that we've come across, like I mentioned, are, are in the thousands. And it's, it's a fairly easy cleanup. It's just not something that you would want to let linger on. So, Kate, as far as other government uh, interactions, since both the 503A and the 503B pharmacies are generally compounding new mixtures, that brings them under the purview of the FDA. How much FDA oversight of both of those types of pharmacies would you expect to see? On the 503B side, those are 100% under FDA purview. They are inspected fairly frequently. So we, we would expect to see an FDA history with one of those types of pharmacies. On the 503A side, those are less frequent. They have happened on occasion, and mostly if a pharmacy is doing some sort of sterile compounding or, again, if there's been a particular issue. But that is also something that we would look for in diligence. And on the FDA compounding side, we would expect to see what's called a Form 43. If there are particular issues noted and we would want to understand how the pharmacy, the 503A or the 503B responded to that, and then in more egregious instances, FDA could potentially issue a warning letter, which is, again, the next level up from an FDA perspective. It doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be fines, but it does mean that the pharmacy, whether a 503A or the 503B, needs to step up their, their game. And in a lot of kind of diligence pathways, we will see a not clean bill of health, but it's not necessarily fatal. So if it were a billing and coding type uh, audit that we were doing in connection with a transaction, it's not at all uncommon for that not to come back perfectly. In this context, how often do you see a pharmacy having difficulty with that FDA process and how serious does it tend to be? I think where we see the most difficulty from the FDA process is if the pharmacy is doing sterile compounding versus non-sterile compounding just because of the heightened requirements and scrutiny for sterile compounding. It's not unusual to have some sort of an issue come up, whether you know they can be as simple as people not correctly covering their hair or not wearing the appropriate garb when you're doing the actual sterile compounding. Most of the time, it's a process or a policy or a signage issue that's fairly easy to fix. It's just habits that a pharmacy may get into that just needs to be cleaned up. Given that the pharmacies are often dealing with a lot of patient information, how often do you have HIPAA and PCI compliance concerns? HIPAA and PCI compliance should be looked at for every pharmacy diligence process. Pharmacies are submitting claim information with patient health care information on them, which puts them under the purview of HIPAA. PCI, the payment card industry, 
data security standard also applies if the pharmacies are taking credit cards from patients. That is another area that should be diligence to ensure compliance. Kate, one other area where we see a number of businesses, I'm not sure how much kind of investment activity we are seeing, and that would be the online pharmacy. You see commercials for them on TV or on the radio. In addition to the actual pharmacy component, a lot of those also have woven into their services an online doctor visit to provide the corresponding prescription for the, for the drug that's going to be filled. What additional elements do those kind of online pharmacies introduce? There's two additional key elements if you're looking at the online pharmacy. To your point, these involve an online or a telehealth doctor visit. So we are going to be looking at telemedicine laws and requirements in all 50 states, depending on where those doctors are located. The other issues that come up with the online pharmacies related to the doctors are potentially corporate practice of medicine issues, depending on how the pharmacy is structured, depending on the relationships with the physicians. And then the last area to really take a look at for these online pharmacies, since we are having relationships with physicians, is the general sort of broad abuse, potential kickback agreement that you would normally think about with physician relationships. And you touched on one element that uh, I just want to draw out more directly is that these online pharmacies and the corresponding online uh, telehealth, the nature of them as opposed to some of the more local retail or even compounding pharmacies, the nature of them tend to kind of blanket the entire country, whether it's a once you're kind of getting customers through the internet, they can be in any state. And so, and every state might have their own views on telehealth medicine as it relates to the citizens of their state. So you very quickly get into a very broad analysis that needs to be undertaken before kind of delving into that market. Absolutely. So, Kate, maybe switching gears to the pharmacy benefit management side, the PBM space is, a, is another sector where we've seen a lot of investor interest and activity. One of the reasons is the PBM space tends to come in, the business comes in bigger clumps. The things that make it useful are that you'll have a large group, a large employer or a group of employers or a coalition of employers that are needing to, for their employees, needing to deal with both the payers and the pharmacies, both in administrating the pharmacy work, but also in pricing. And so these large PBM businesses kind of serve as a go-between for these large coalitions of employers or pension plan groupings to connect with the insurers and the pharmacies. What sort of activity in that space have you seen thus far, Kate? A little bit of activity in this space. I mean, there are sort of your medium-sized PBMs that are, are working with employer coalitions. And then, of course, there are the, the giants out there, the PBMs that most folks are familiar with. At this point, we've seen a little more sort of down below or middle part of the chain as far as investor activity. 
I mentioned the scale. If uh, a PBM business can kind of bring together the, the internal expertise that enables them to contract first with that large employer group, either individual employer or a coalition of them, then they immediately have a lot of buying power that they can use their expertise to navigate the terms with the pharmacies themselves and the payers, often to large-scale dollars. So you can see why there's a lot of interest from investors in that space. For it to be kind of possible at all, it requires a certain amount of scale. And then once you've kind of built that, that initial level of scale, you can kind of replicate that exercise with other large employer groups. Given kind of the increasing activity in the PBM space, what, what are some of the diligence concerns that a buyer should be focusing on on the front end of a PBM transaction? Well, like we discussed, the PBMs are the middleman between employer groups and the insurers. So the biggest area of diligence when you're looking at a PBM business is to really focus on the various contracts and all of the key contract terms that we would normally be interested in. So on the one hand, you want to understand all of the PBM relationships with manufacturers and their rebates and the discounts, how those are set up. You also really want to understand on the other side, the contracts with the employer groups. And like you mentioned, sometimes those employer groups are a coalition of employer groups. And those contracts in general are extremely heavily negotiated, can have very long terms, can have explicit provisions as to whether or not the contract can be terminated or assigned. So these are some of the key things you want to keep in mind when you're looking at a a PBM business. Right. And you can imagine kind of the competing interests in those agreements. The employer group wants to have flexibility. The PBM, on the other hand, these relationships, and it may not even be a long list of these relationships with employer groups that a PBM has, these relationships with the employer groups are the real core of their business. So really diligencing the relationship, not just the contract, but the relationship of this PBM with those employers or employer coalitions is a topic that folks spend a lot of time on. Kate, it would seem uh, that one of the risks in the PBM business is a risk that is true for all intermediaries, especially when they grow much larger. And that is that the intermediaries usually start out in kind of creating efficiencies that would be difficult for a number of disparate either kind of employers or insurance companies to navigate. But you get to a certain size and it starts to raise questions as to whether or not, rather than kind of continually adding more efficiency, they are rent seekers within that ecosphere. And the folks on either side of that start to look for ways to cut through the intermediary. How big of a risk do you think that presents to either particular PBM businesses or the the industry more generally? Right now, there's been quite a bit of controversy over all of the issues that you just mentioned. There is currently a case that was just heard in the Supreme Court a lot of states to try to get at the issue of managing costs or forcing PBMs to be transparent about the savings that they say they're providing have enacted laws to try to regulate the PBMs. And the current 
issue that's being addressed by the Supreme Court is whether the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, ERISA, preempts or specifically preempts states from making laws to try to further regulate PBMs, whether it relates to PBM relationships with pharmacies or how PBMs are passing along rebates from drug manufacturers. So, Kate, in the context of looking at PBM business from a diligence side, what are some of the hot areas that you'd want to be looking at as far as where people might get in trouble or where issues could arise? Just a couple of different high-level areas that we normally think about when we're doing diligence on a PBM. One of them is what's called the retail pharmacy spread. And this is where potentially an employer or an insurer might be charged more for processing the drug or for the drug than the pharmacy actually gets paid. So for that, you would want to ask for specific data from the PBM and and how the payments are working. Other issues that sometimes come up are things we might typically think about, such as kickbacks. Issues that come up in the PBM space are drug manufacturers potentially paying kickbacks or other fees to the PBM to ensure that their product is placed on a better formulary tier for the employer group. And this sometimes happens with branded drugs to try to make sure that those drugs are given out as prescription. A couple other things that often come up in this space are whether a PBM also owns a mail order pharmacy. Sometimes PBMs do have ownership relationships with either a brick-and-mortar pharmacy or a mail-order pharmacy. And in those instances, sometimes PBMs try to force the employees to get their mail-order drugs only through the pharmacy owned by the PBM, which, of course, benefits the PBM by making that additional money. There are certain states who have tried to enact laws to prevent this. But again, like we just discussed, some of that may play out a little bit more depending on how the Supreme Court rules on the most recent case. Just to mention a few others, sometimes PBMs have aggressive pharmacy auditing strategies where they'll try to recoup money back from a pharmacy. Again, this is another area where sometimes there are state laws that limit the type of auditing a pharmacy can do. And lastly, I think we may have mentioned this as well, but some states have specific registration or licensing or other requirements for PBM. So it's important to take a close look at the state or state in which the PBM is operating and make sure they have all the required permits or licenses. And then lastly, we're dealing most likely with patient information passing between the PBM in some way. So just general data privacy and HIPAA like we would for most most deals. Thanks, Kate. I think we are going to continue to see kind of increasing interest in these areas as both consolidation and evolution in the space picks up steam. That's probably a good place for us to call it a day. As always, if anyone out there is looking at a transaction in any of these sectors and would like to kick around where some of the hot issues are or take a look at something from a structural perspective, by all means, please give us a call. We're happy to do that off the clock. 
And with that, we'll bring this episode of Across the Table to a close. Thank you, everyone. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.